as always, I'm going to go ahead and start with a, a lovely uh, bit of housekeeping. Uh, first, as always, thank you all for joining us. Uh, it's been a long few weeks, and it will probably be a longer few weeks as we sort of look forward to everything that's happened, everything that's happening, and the repercussions of it all. Uh, as always, we want all of you to stay safe. Uh, please, uh, we are trying to be a very safe space for you to enjoy yourself and relax, uh, continue to talk freely and enjoy yourselves, but we do uh, worry about a lot of you. Um, internally to us, we are always looking for new moderators. Uh, we've uh, had some drop-off in activity on the server from some people, from uh, larger groups, and some larger new groups of people have joined up. Uh, we're breaking 1,300 people again, so more mods, more admins. Uh, if you feel like you can contribute to the server at all, don't hesitate. Uh, hit the volunteer section, uh, say hello, uh, annoy anyone in the mod or admin group. We would love to have you uh, helping us keep things generally clean. Uh, on that note, we're also this week going to be doing some house cleaning when it comes to different sections and text channels that aren't being used, trying to consolidate a lot of our conversations down to a uh, fewer channels, uh, hopefully get a little bit more lively of a discussion. Uh, those are the big things uh, this week. Uh, we will, in a in a short amount of time, have our zine popping out. Uh, we're we're for, on the verge of hitting uh, three straight months of doing this, which is great. Uh, so we'll be doing uh, some stuff around the three-month anniversary, especially as we move into Chapter 3, coincidentally, which will be nice. Works great for me. Uh, I think that covers up most of our housekeeping news. Uh, was there anything else? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, so, uh, this week we are diving into uh, Chapter 2, Section 7, Social Repression and Psychic Repression. Uh, as always, our format's pretty simple. We're going to be reading and talking. And I'm sure all of you are just so surprised. Uh, I'll go ahead and kick it off, and uh, as we make our way through uh, this section... Um, oh, Varun, go ahead. I just mentioned something uh, as an introduction to this section. Right, so um, prior to this, we were talking about um, the, 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 the paralogisms of psychoanalysis, right? The term comes from Kant. It's a very Kantian terminology that uh, essentially it's these, these uh, errors that make uh, psychoanalysis a transcendent practice rather than a completely imminent practice and hence can be re can be relegated to the realm of some sort of really speculative metaphysics and so while in these in the in the past chapters what we we covered was looking at psychoanalysis directly and the errors of psychoanalysis uh, in this chapter we're going to cover what allowed what were the conditions that allowed the errors for psychoanalysis to come into being Right. What were the actual historical conditions that allowed for something to Oedipus to occur? Because they make it pretty clear that, you know, Oedipus is not really such a uh, powerful discovery by psychoanalysis. And it's Oedipus is really useless at the end of the day. The subjects already come Oedipalized and psychoanalysis just goes and reinstitutes it. They go and reaffirm the Oedipalization. So what we're going to consider are the historical conditions that actually make psychoanalysis uh, a possibility under a capitalist society that restricts uh, social production and uh, desiring reproduction into two different regimes. Well, I am going to uh, go ahead and uh, begin reading because we are going to hit uh, what Varun is talking about pretty much in the first paragraph, actually. So uh, I'll begin. <sighs> 
We have attempted to analyze the form, the reproduction, the formal cause, the method, and the condition of the Oedipal Triangle, but we have postponed the analysis of the real forces, the real causes on which the triangulation depends. The general line of the response is simple. It has been sketched out by the Reich. It is social repression, the forces of social repression. This response, however, leaves two problems untouched and makes them even more urgent. On the one hand, the specific relationship between psychic repression and social repression. On the other hand, the particular situation of Oedipus in the social repression-psychic repression system. The two problems are obviously linked, because if psychic repression did bear on incestuous desires, it would thereby gain a certain independence and primacy as a condition for constituting a system of exchange or any in a, for constituting a system of exchange or any society in relation to social repression, which would then concern only the returns of the psychically repressed in a constituted society. Therefore, we should first of all consider the second question. Does psychic repression bear upon the Oedipus complex as an adequate expression of the unconscious? Must we even follow Freud in saying that Oedipus complex according to one or the other of its two poles, is either repressed, not without leaving behind traces and returns that will be confronted by the prohibitions, or suppressed, not without being passed on to the children, with whom the story begins all over again. We wonder if Oedipus, in fact, express, expresses desire. If Oedipus is desired, then it is indeed on it that psychic repression comes to bear. Now, the Freudian argument is of a nature to leave us wondering. Freud quotes a remark by Sir J. G. Fraser, according to which, the law only forbids men to do what their instincts incline them to do. Instead of assuming, therefore, from the legal prohibition of incest that there is a natural aversion to incest, we ought rather to assume that there is a natural instinct in favor of it. In other words, if it is prohibited, this is because it is desired. There would be no need to prohibit what is not desired. Once again, it is this confidence in the law, the unawareness of the ruses and the procedures of the law, that leaves us wondering. Uh, for this, there's, it's worth going over a handful of things. Uh, first is uh, the difference between uh, psychic and social repression. Uh, social repression being the uh, much more strenuous and obvious thing we're probably seeing right now with the BLM and things around our society where social overall uh, repression occurs. Uh, psychic repression is a much more difficult thing to sort of nail down. And I'd love if anyone would love to give thoughts or uh, opinions on what that means. If I understand correctly, I mean, there's a lot of Freudian stuff you can tease out of this paragraph, right? Like there's references to civilization and its discontents among others. But I think psychic repression um, in a nutshell, is something along the lines of the unconscious that would go move into the conscious gets repressed, so it can't get um, so that the tension can't be released for Freud, which is to say, like um, this is how you get like Freudian slips. This is how you get like the um, the the technologies of uh, things like um, projection and those different ways that like. There's something that really wants to come out into consciousness and sort of semi-conscious, but you keep trying to sort of like push it away, right? So like there's, a, in these terms, there's a clear conflict of two different desires, right? 
and from that you get this uh, this building building tension that uh, Freud will say uh, gets released through these different technologies such as projection. That's it's a uh, just to quickly um, one of the one of the things that tends to be uh, the the differentiating factor in what I've read in the past is uh, psychic repression tends to be internal. Uh, it's one's own repressive, whether it's unconscious, fully conscious, whatever it is. Uh, psychic repression can, tends to come internally. Social repression uh, obviously comes externally, socially. Um, I, I think one of the key things here is that they're explicitly talking about Wilhelm Reich. And I, I'd recommend if anyone's still a bit confused about this chapter a bit afterwards, I think it, it, it might be helpful for uh, those people to, might, to reread um, the chapter four of chapter one. Because that's exactly what they were talking about when they talk about a materialist psychiatry. But they bring him Wilhelm, Wilhelm Reich here. And uh, the key book in reference, I'm pretty sure, is uh, The Mass Psychology of Fascism. And uh, I think, you know, Wilhelm Reich didn't really fit into like the traditional sort of, uh, he was kind of an outsider with the whole psychoanalysis analysis practice, right? He was, he was really into some esoteric stuff like shooting aliens and what whatnot. But uh, one of the things that made him so influential in the movement of uh, anti-psychiatry and stuff like that was that he explored uh, social repression far further than any other psychoanalyst was doing at that time. And, uh, you know, what, what made him so popular with people like Artie Lang and stuff is that essentially he he stopped considering uh, psychic repression as something very much internal, right? It's, it's You're not born with these sort of uh, ideas. It's, it's not a sort of human nature of uh, the psyche to repress yourself, right? As maybe someone like Freud did. They, they, later in this chapter, they talk about Freud's conservatism and how he went to this idea of, you know, we, we, we are human natures to sort of repress. But um, one of the things Wilhelm Reich did so well was that he looked at the way, um, the way a social organization, things like ideology, come very directly to repress people. Well, and, and it's worth mentioning because one of the things they absolutely uh, referenced throughout the early parts of Anti-Oedipus is the idea of why the fascist, and we've talked about this, why the fascist seeks to be repressed. Uh, and uh, Wilhelm Reich's book, uh, oh God, oh God, uh, the something of fascism, oh crap, what is it called? Um, the Mass Psychology of Fascism. Uh wonderful uh, sort of treatise on why a fascist wants to be repressed, even though it's against their own interest. Uh, and so it's absolutely worth reading uh, Wilhelm Reich. I believe that's what you were referring to, uh, Varun. But I mean, he's going to be name dropped a lot in this passage, but the thing is, oh, he yeah, didn't, for sure. you know, because he, he needed the category of desiring machines to be able to account for the entire social field, which was the mistake he, the losing lottery identified that he made. Yes. I will try to find a uh, PDF of the book uh, as someone else reads the next section. Would, who would like to give the next section a read? Chat. Oh, oh, oh. Park bench. Yes, sounds great. Um. Sorry about pronunciation here. Uh, the immortal father of Selene's death on installment plan cries out, so you want to see me die, eh? Is that what you want? Speak up. 
We didn't want anything of the sort, however. We didn't want the train to be daddy or the station mommy. We only wanted peace and innocence and to be left alone to machine our little machines, oh, desiring production. Of course, pieces from the bodies of the mother and the father are taken up in the connections. Parental appellations crop up in the disjunctions of the chain. The parents are there as ordinary stimuli of an indifferent nature that trigger the becoming of adventures, of races, and of continents. But what a bizarre Freudian mania to relate to Oedipus what overflows it on every side and from all angles, beginning with the hallucination of books and the delirium of apprenticeships, the teacher as father substitute, and the book as family romance. Freud couldn't abide a simple humorous remark by Jung to the effect that Oedipus must not really exist since even the primitive prefers a pretty young woman to his mother or his grandmother. If Jung betrayed everything, it was nevertheless not by way of this remark, which can only suggest that the mother functions as a pretty girl as much as the pretty girl functions as mother, since the main thing for the primitive or the child is to form and put into motion their desiring machines, to make flows circulate and to perform breaks in these flows. I think the key thing here, um, it's, I think it's, a, so I posted a quote by uh, Eugene Holland to, to help uh, sort of elucidate what they're talking about, what they mean by the prohibition of incest uh, being the sort of repressed representation and the law being a semiotic system rather than a cause and effect. But uh, I think it's really helpful to visualize what they mean by when they talk about uh, flows, because um, what happens is these flows literally get trapped. And they get trapped in, in, in sort of uh, ways that are, um, you know, they reduce your potential, right? Societies have all these potential built in them, and then they get stuck in sort of uh, these boxes almost, or triangulations almost, where uh, the law, for example, the prohibition of incest causes people to act out in such uh, in such harmful ways or desire their own repression, for example. And uh, it's, it's essentially, I think, I think one of the key things is uh, uh, Deleuze's uh, anti-anthropocentrism plays a very key role here, right? Because if, if everything is partial objects, right, if everything is desiring machines, that means that these flows, as they discovered in chapter one, is an ideal thing, right? It's connected to everything else. Um, each desiring machine is connected to another one. And there's no distinction between, you know, uh, human desire machine versus uh, a piece of paper, right? Later on, they talk about, you know, the bureaucrat basically getting 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 hard on or getting a boner from just uh, uh, playing with his papers or Hitler, Hitler sexually arousing the military officers. But um, what's, what's key here is since all these flows are no longer s- stuck in these uh, positions of mother, father, or uh, human, for example, as psychoanalysis construed it, it's that they're always connected in a larger social field. You know, desire and production is the same thing as social production. And when it's connected in a larger social field, everything's connected. It, you know, it makes it easier to repress you, right? Because one person's repression is, it becomes your repression. So you're connected to everyone else. And, uh, um, but, you know, it also opens up possibilities for revolution at the same time. Uh, something to be aware of is that uh, Jung uh, made central to his uh, his psychology the idea that the uh, anima, which is the primary archetype for the man, <coughs> is a young girl. And uh, and then he said uh, about the the animas, which would be the primary archetype for the woman. 
that uh, he would uh, he would leave it to his uh, you know female followers to figure that out. What is the anima? And um, and uh, quite a few of them said it was a young man to the older woman and or the adult woman. <clears throat> and then uh, the next the next level uh, up is uh, for the. Uh, Next level archetype up for the man is the wise old man, and the uh, the next archetype up for the woman is the crone or the or the wise woman. So so anyway, that's kind of like the fundamental archetypal structure that Jung projected. To um to try and tie this back together too, right? So it looks like what they're doing in these first two paragraphs is they're investigating more directly the forces that bear onto the. Um, the forces that bear into the Oedipal Triangle and make it possible, right? And so, right, so that means we're going to be looking at, like, the forces that are going on in the world and the way that those get mapped onto Oedipus and, and sort of tri- uh, triangulated in conjunction with us. And so just to make a quick point, I think what's interesting is they're they're questioning the idea that psychic repression can be used to explain social repression as though psychic repression flows directly from the person into society. So right, like in a basic way of understanding civilization, it's discontents is that like institutions crop up um, in lieu of a need for a father, right? And so like uh, institutions become a father figure and the, the sort of infantile desire stems up from that and the institutions will um, quash that desire to a certain degree but also provide for us and so you get the resent uh, the resentment and the guilt in between that but you also get like the superego which is how you're supposed to like regulate your conscious and your unconscious so as to fit into all this and so i i see them um making the critique that uh that model getting mapped on the society to understand both psychic and social repression, particularly that psychic would be the primary force that goes into the social, um, is is uh, the, the the suppositions of it are uh, mistaken. Right, and I think also we're, we're going to see a lot of Guattari's anti-psychiatry crop up a lot now, because um, if it's a, if you're no longer considering these things as eternal, right? Inter, I mean, internal, right? Internal to the psyche. If you're considering them as always connected, everything is being connected to a larger machine. Everything's being connected to every everything else. That means that um, it can't, you know, it logically can't be just psychic production, right? It's it's not it's not your own human nature. <laughs> or uh, the Freudian tradition might have you. And one of the things that uh, I think is kind of interesting is that there's a, this focus on repression takes the, takes the uh, uh, focus off of uh, abuse because there's not just repression, but there's also abuse which causes trauma. So um, it'll be interesting to see if that, that how much they talk about uh, abuse rather than just repression. I, I actually want to take a second also to go over the last uh, part of this, uh, because I, I'm having a difficulty understanding, I think, the second part. When they begin, when he begins talking about Jung, 
And uh, Jung makes the crack. Uh, Oedipus must not really exist, since even the primitive prefers a pretty young woman to his mother or his grandmother. The last line, if Jung betrayed everything, it was nevertheless not by way of this remark, which can only suggest that the mother functions as a pretty girl as much as the pretty girl functions as the mother, since the main thing for the primitive or the child is to form or put into motion their desiring machines to make flow straight. Uh, I don't understand this last us part. part. I mean, I, mean I, I think, you know, I think what they're uh, reaffirming here is that it's something they've mentioned already pretty much a lot of times in pre- previous uh, chapters is that, you know, th- there's a conventional misunderstanding to see this book as just as uh, uh, see uh, their view of Oedipus as just being this, oh, yeah, Oedipus is just stupid. I mean, you go you go to anyone who's not really who's not really read any psychoanalyst literature and you tell them, oh, Freud's theory of Oedipus. Most of most people on the street will just tell you, oh, he's full of shit. Right. Uh, so here's what they're. I think what they're affirming is that it's not so. It's it's again coming back to that idea that yeah, Oedipus is very much real, but it's 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 the conditions that are very different that are applied to it. And I think by their remark on Jung, what they're saying is, you know, Jung. So it's, it's they're saying it's a joke, right? It's not really a critique what Jung is doing of Oedipus, but they're saying. Even in this, Oedipus is still there, right? The young woman, if you betrayed everything, and nevertheless, not not by way of this remark, which can only suggest that the mother functions as a pretty girl, right? Oedipus still exists, and um, essentially, what they're saying is it, it it still doesn't account for the conditions, and that's what they're going to go into the prohibition of incest as being a, uh, a greater account of the actual conditions of the real lineage or genealogy of Oedipus. So it's almost uh, Jung makes a joke and they're almost making a joke back saying, uh, you know, Jung makes the joke, oh, everything can be said to read Oedipus. And they go, yeah, you're even doing it right there is kind of. Yeah, the I, I actually read it a little bit differently. I see it as. Um, it seems like uh, Jung's joke that um, somebody would. Des- sure, Freud, uh, people might desire their mother, but who wouldn't. Who would say no to a younger, prettier girl, right? So, right, like, that still kind of fits into, like, libidinal drive and all that. But it also means it betrays that, um, right, because I think even Freud would kind of admit to that. It, it betrays the Oedipal in the sense that there's an exception now, right? The, the desire can't be triangulated onto the mother, any um, onto the mother function, rather, so, like, what I see them saying there is, um, what because they're they're all about how humor, kind of has this kernel of truth that can like deactivate structures in a way, um, even if it's just by parody. What what I see them saying is, Yun's joke doesn't read Oedipus and in, back into the world. It shows that even even as committed as somebody like Freud or psychoanalysts um, will be to Oedipus, they're also going to recognize that uh, if a younger, prettier girl comes around, right, the mother will get forgotten. So I'd like to advance a reading of that, which is to say that both Jung and Freud are talking about the archetype of woman. And, uh, and, And there is a much wider, probably, vista for desires to express I, I think you want to be careful there because Freud, my understanding is Freud does not have a theory of archetypes. 
what he calls a complex is what Jung called a GitHub. What Freud calls a complex, Jung will re-understand in, as a complex. So he'll like, Jung will accept the Oedipus complex, but Jung will also say complices are not complices are not all there are and in terms of archetypes right like there's a whole world of archetypes that exist and that we feel when we interact with them at a conscious or unconscious level and like that's very different than freud as we're seeing here where freud will say no no there's this complex that we all suffer from and it fills us but, but that's that's the same as the, the relationship between a restricted economy and a general economy. And I think the joke back that they're making is that that in 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 Jung's joke, he's still talking about the archetype of woman, but the uh, but the the archetypes are a whole field of possible complex. And uh, and so Jung himself said there were many more complex, just the archetype of woman. And, and just to remind what, what that archetype of woman means is that um, all women uh, in all of their peculiarity are part of the archetype of woman, right? Just as all men are part of the archetype of man. So to pick out the old woman or the young girl is, is itself just a restriction of the economy. I disagree, but I don't think... I don't think the Jungian, I don't think this is the place for a Jungian discussion. I, I think we can open up a, a, we can talk a little bit more about it in the review session tomorrow. How's that? Um, I think that would work nicely. Um, for now, uh, we are going to continue on. I'll, I'll read the next chap, uh, section. Uh, the law tells us you will not marry your mother and you will not kill your father. And we docile subjects say to ourselves, so that's what I wanted. Will it ever be suspected that the law discredits and has an interest in discrediting and disgracing the person it presumes to be guilty, the person the law wants to be guilty and wants to be made to feel guilty? One acts as if it were possible to conclude directly from psychic repression the nature of the repressed, and from the prohibition the nature of what is prohibited. There we have a typical paralogism. Yet another, a fourth paralogism, that we shall have to call displacement. For what really takes place is that the law prohibits something that is perfectly fictitious in the order of desire or of the instincts, so as to persuade its subjects that they had the intention corresponding to this fiction. This is indeed the only way the law has of getting a grip on intention, of making the unconscious guilty. In short, we are not witness here to a system of two terms where we could conclude from the formal prohibition what is really prohibited. Instead, we have before us a system of three terms, where this conclusion becomes completely illegitimate. Distinctions must be made. The repressing representation which performs the repression, the repressed representative on which the repression actually comes to bear, the displaced represented, which gives a falsified apparent image that is meant to trap desire. Because why not make it more complicated? Um, I, I'm sure Varun, uh, would you love to jump? Oh, Gigi Powell, are you jumping in? No, go ahead, Danny. Oh, okay. Okay. 
So I guess this is where they're coming out with the um, okay. So they're going to ask how, how is it possible that uh, you know the, the flows of desire can be conditioned to go in such a manner? And uh, uh, I think I, I think their reading of the incest prohibition. I don't know exactly where it's coming from. I'm guessing Levi Strauss, but I'm not sure exactly. But uh, what they're saying about the incest prohibition thing is that it's uh, it's from the prohibition of incest that our is our flows of desire get altered in, in so many ways. I, I, I think, I think it, it's, it's a lot more precise to specifically mention flow every time we mention desire. So I think it makes it a lot easier when we're talking about, when, when they essentially talking about the semiotics of this whole system. But um, what they're going to say is that it's, uh, it's in the act of prohibiting uh, when 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 incest is pro when and incest is prohibited, right? When uh, when it's sort of when there's a sort of disjunction applied there. I may be using disjunction incorrectly, but somebody could hopefully correct me on that. But when when there's a when there's a prohibition implied, what happens is our desire gets shifted into something specific, and uh, when our desire is is, is shifted, we we we, we are presented with an almost uh, a false representation or a false image of what we want, and that only comes in the act of uh, in, uh, in in the act of prohibi- prohibition. And uh, that's just and that's I think that's what they're talking about when the paralogism of displacement comes in. It's that you know the subject discovers what they desire at the same time that they discover they cannot have it, and it's from that sort of uh, that representation. It's it might be another double bind also, but I'm not so sure about that. Um, so essentially what they're going to say is that I think Eugene Holland gives the best example of this. It's a pretty complicated idea, but um, it's not that the way the law works, that the law of the prohibition of incest, it's not a system of cause and effect where you have one thing going from here and then that leads to that, right? It's it's instead, it's a, it's a complex system of semiotics with uh, a signifier, a signified and a representative uh, I'm not sure how well I can explain this, but I just pinned uh, a passage from uh, Eugene Holland's book, and I, I, I'd recommend uh, you guys read it if you want a little bit more aid in this and how the semiotics actually function. And I think it's worth uh, uh, to talk about it uh, very, very simply. When they discuss the idea of desires, at least this is how I've been reading it, uh, desires they discuss as flows, and they've, they've, it's a big sort of, sort of uh, thread through a lot of their uh, writing. Uh, if we discuss these things as flows, it's almost as though desires are sort of a natural river. And at any point, if you actually want to control this river, these these flows, you need to create little places for the desires to go. And so the first thing you do is you give uh, you you create this sort of pocket where desire can become trapped. And it's not so much that you are creating the actual uh, desire itself because that's not how it works. Desire is a flow. Desire is just moving. And when you create that little pocket, desire's happy to fill it up. But it's not necessary that the desire wanted to go in that direction. It's not that water desires to go down another thing. It's that this place has been crafted for it. Uh, and that's, that's I think, a lot of how I read the last few parts of this chapter is they're saying this isn't so much that uh, uh, we're, we're creating a prohibition for a desire that you naturally have. Instead, what we're doing is we're creating a pocket for your desire to sit because otherwise your desires would just go all over the place and we've got to control them is kind of the, the uh, repressive side of that whole thing that I read. Yeah, that's a, 
to the schizophrenic paranoia versus schizophrenic to a certain degree again. But uh, I, I thought I'll just read the passage because it's a bit short, but I think it, it's pretty lucid. In what, um, so what they call this, I'm quoting uh, Eugene Holland in his book, Losing Guattari's Anti-Oedipus, An Introduction to Schizoanalysis. So what they call the repressing representation is one thing. It is the signifier of the prohibition in quote-unquote incest, quote-unquote Oedipus. The signifier entails or indeed generates a corresponding signified, what Deleuze and Guattari call the displaced represented. But they mean the distorted image of desire produced by the representation itself, a.k.a. the Oedipus complex. The referent, however, which Deleuze and Guattari refer to as the repressed representative, is something else altogether. Desire itself, in the form it takes, operating beneath the prohibitive system of representation in a given mode of social production. What really gets repressed by the prohibition is thus completely different from the false image of it produced by the prohibition. Desire gets displaced into an erroneous signified belonging to the prohibitive system of representation, rather than to desire itself. Far from being repressed by the instance prohibition, Oedipal desire is in fact produced by it, and then gets repressed by it only after the fact. The Oedipus complex, Deleuze and Guattari insist, is a falsified apparent image that is meant to trap desire. I think the key word trap is really beneficial in sort of visualizing this. Completely. And it's, and it's one of those things that it's, uh, they're, they're basically taking almost the meta commentary where it's, uh, prior to this, Freud went, oh no, you have these desires, everything comes in these shapes. And they're like, yeah, actually no, desire comes in a million shapes. And by applying it all to Oedipus, you're actually uh, collapsing it down into a very tiny uh, sort of oversimplified thing and then sort of yelling at it for being the shape that it's in uh, when it doesn't want to be in those shapes. I think the key thing to uh, take away from this passage is that it's, uh, you know, what, what, what allowed Freud to discover the Oedipus complex? Well, it was, perhaps it was the prohibition of incest. Perhaps that's is what, that's what allowed desire to be functioned in such a way. Yeah, and I, I think you're right to say that, um, because I think what you're saying is supported by them saying that uh, you look for the, what are they right? Um, one adds as if it was more possible to conclude directly from psychic repression the nature of the repressed, and from the prohibition the nature of what is prohibited. Right, that's the displacement uh, paralogism you guys are talking about. But I want to... Um, I want to make one point about this uh, section that I think is worth dwelling on for a moment. Before that um, sentence I just wrote, they write, will it ever be suspected that the law discredits and has an interest in discrediting and disgracing the person who presumes to be guilty, the person the law wants to be guilty and wants to be made to feel guilty? So, right, like, if we look for the psychic repression in the in the person's repression, what we might miss is the way the law or these social forces are actually doing, have a desire and are, are desiring a repression of them, right? So there's, it brings us out into the social to look at how these things are working. But it also, um, it's also interesting to me that, right, so we've talked about how the psychoanalyst will put you on the couch and, right, this, this sort of, um, problem of interpretation that we're talking about here. But now we're seeing in terms of the law, I, I think I said somewhere else that the the law makes you a character of its own uh, scripting, right? In the same way, 
we're seeing the law doing a very similar thing um, as psychoanalysis does. Well, so is that is that a bit of uh, escape, escapee uh, inside of the chat asked, isn't it just a way to modify the law because Freudian repression is devoid of desire and desire has to be tricked because for it to drive and prohibit in the law unrepressed? I thought that Freudian repression is a way that desire is sort of trapped and unable and looking for a way to um, release itself. But otherwise, yeah, I think I think I agree that desire is sort of being tricked in the way. So right, like it's it's you're being tricked on the couch. I don't want to say tricked. You're being told that so that's what it was on the couch. Right? Well, I, well, I and, and, and I think um, I'm going to actually read the next paragraph because I think we've got a few people in chat who uh, it will answer directly your question. Um, Such is the nature of Oedipus, the sham image. Repression does not operate through Oedipus, nor is it directed at Oedipus. It is not a question of the return of the oppressed. Oedipus is a factitious product of psychic repression. It is only the represented insofar as it is induced by repression. Repression cannot act without displacing desire, without giving rise to a consequent desire, all ready, all warm for punishment, and without putting this desire in the place of the antecedent desire on which repression comes to bear in principle or in reality. Oh, so that's what it was, they say. Um, it, again, we're, we're talking about kind of uh, the, the nature of desire itself. Uh, all the way through to where we've given it a shape and then afterwards we've yelled at it for having that shape. And we assume that that shape is really what desire takes the form of, but it doesn't. Uh, the repression, the, the, the social repression uh, under, uh, sort of belies the shape of the psychic repression and, and confuses. Jack, I'm going to say you're going to read the next paragraph because no one volunteered. I'd love to volunteer. I wait my whole life for this. D.H. Lawrence, who does not struggle against Freud in the name of the rights of the ideal, but who speaks by virtue of the flows of sexuality and the intensities of the unconscious, and who is incensed and bewildered by what Freud is doing when he closets sexuality in the Oedipal nursery, has a foreboding of this operation of displacement and protests with all his might, no, Oedipus is not a state of desire and the drives. It is an idea, nothing but an idea that repression inspires in us concerning desire. Not even a compromise, but an idea in the service of repression, its propaganda, or its propagation. Quote, the incest, excuse me, quote, the incest motive is a logical deduction of the human reason, which has recourse to this last extremity to save itself, which first and foremost is a logical deduction made by the human reason, even if unconsciously made, and secondly is introduced into the effective passional sphere, where it now proceeds to serve as a principle for action. This has nothing to do with the act of unconscious, which sparkles, vibrates, travels. We realize that the unconscious contains nothing ideal, nothing in the least conceptual, and hence nothing in the least personal, 
since personality, like the ego, belongs to the conscious or mental subjective self. So the first analyses are, or should be, so impersonal that the so-called human relations are not involved. The first relationship is neither personal nor biological, a fact which psychoanalysis has not succeeded in grasping. End quote. So much here. So, so I, I, I take this as a, a, a kind of indication of the idea of the transcendent unconscious. So the, the, the transcendental unconscious is the unconscious that we experience that gives us syntheses. So we know it's there because whole things pop into our perception uh, without us having to do anything. And then we, and then active synthesis is when we make judgments about it or do things with it. But, um, but there is this question of the transcendent unconscious. Uh, which is um, just, uh, you know, we don't even know exists. And uh, Henry, uh, Michel Henry, wrote a book uh, called The Essence of Manifestation, where he posits that there is some, some part of manifestation that never manifests. You know, in other words, an ontological unconscious. I personally really love some of the lines uh, when he's actually quoting D.H. Lawrence. Uh, we realize that the unconscious contains nothing ideal, nothing in the least conceptual, and hence nothing in the least personal, since personality, like the ego, belongs to the conscious or mental subjective self. So many great little moments. I have not read a lot of Lawrence myself. I really need to do that. Yeah, I mean, when they talk about the the unconscious not being this ideal thing, right? Nothing ideal, nothing in the least conceptual, and hence nothing in the least personal, right? I think one of the there, there are two things that uh, can be deduced from this. Um, the first thing about nothing from the ideal, I, I think they're harping back to the idea of uh, the transcendent use of the of the synthesis and the imminent use. So the imminent use is the is the the idea of it being productive, and the transcendent use is what what gets misunderstood as psychoanalysis, right? And that's harping back to their real their, the real scholarship of Kantian critique with Deleuze. And uh, um, and that's and that's the misunderstanding of representation that it creates this ideal and you know leads to more desire desiring of desire of repression. Um, then they also talk about that the unconscious is a, is a never personal, right? It's it, that's uh, human relations are not involved. I think this is a very key line. So the first analysis, or should be, so impersonal that the so-called human relations are not involved. The first relationship is neither personal nor biological, a fact which psychoanalysis has not succeeded to gasp. I think that's like one of the most important lines from this paragraph, right? Because desiring production, it is social production in uh, in mass, right? It's uh, it's it's, it's uh, sexuality is everywhere, according to them, and. Uh, it's it's these flows of desire. They're not personal. You're always cutting in from somewhere else. Um, the flow of desire. It's it, you're always connected into some 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 other flow of desire, and um, because of that, you know the unconscious really isn't. Uh, and it's not. And I, and I think it's it's best not to get confused with something like Jung's collective unconscious because it's extremely different from that. Right. It's something very imminent. It's something where this production happens, right? And, and it's it's a process that's happening literally everywhere, as they said, right? And I think I would like to it, it repeat that line about, like, the bureaucrat uh, getting sexualized by 
playing with their papers. So, you know, I think it happens everywhere, right? You know, that feeling when you get like a new phone and then on the phone, you unpeel the cover, right? There is some, there is some sort of uh, sexuality about that, right? That it's, it's sort of, uh, it feels good to a certain degree, right? I think maybe even <laughs> ASMR to a certain degree. But well, the keyboard- it's, it's, there's a, there's an entire subreddit called uh, oddly satisfying. That is a hundred percent about sexual libidinal energy of the, of the strangest things. And not in the sense of like rule 34 fucked up weirdness, but in the sense of uh, the the little moments of life that have that sort of sexual component that is absolutely satisfying in that way. That's really tough uh, for us to put our hands on. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's also it's, it's, it's the key part here is that it's always connected outside. So, you know, everyone else has the connection, which, you know, could either could either lead to more repression. It, it makes everything a lot more. uh it, it, it makes everything a lot more imperative, right? It could lead to, since it's so connected, since everything is this like massive cybernetic system, it could lead to either a more repression or be more revolution. So it's 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 the possibilities are quite drastic. Uh, I just like to say that this this critique is against Freud and Jung equally. Both of them fall uh, to this problem of. Uh, thinking that things in consciousness are, uh, are, are manifestations of the unconscious. I just wanted to say we were speaking about it in chat a little bit, but the, that final line from Lawrence about the, what is it, the first relationship? Sorry, where, where did I put the first relationship is neither personal nor biological. Um, I think Varun hinted at in the chat that, that it'll, they'll be more explicit about that as we get through the text. But it's such a, a beautiful, like very eloquent and very kind of direct way of approaching this problem of, of talking about the Oedipal Triangle. Because the first thing I thought of just reading that is that it just completely blows open, you know, discussions around gender and sexuality in such an, in such an amazing way to think about, you know, the first relationship is prior to a person of any kind of person or, or embodiment or symbol of a person. It's a relationship with one's own desire itself and experiencing that desire. I think that's such a, a, a great, just that whole paragraph. I loved the, the indignation in D.H. Lawrence's words, and I'm really excited to see where they go with some of that. Yeah. I think um, with that whole idea, right, I think one of the key things that's really showing here is uh, Deleuze and Guattari's anti-anthropocentrism, right? There's no real human organism anymore. There's no human anti-Oedipus. What they're talking about is essentially the fact that, you know, this is also goes back to their critique of Melanie Klein. When she, when, when Melanie Klein thought about part, part, partial objects, she always thought about the partial objects as being in the background, of uh, um, of a human, right? So she said the mother's breast, not just the breast in general. And, uh, you know, the losing watery, they take it all the way, right? They go all the way to say that these are just impersonal objects and it's just connecting. It's, 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 it's you know, it's just these, uh, just these machines, really. All right. Uh, we should move on to the next paragraph because we have, we have a little bit more to get through, uh, of course. Uh, would anyone like to take that on? All right, I will then. Uh, Oedipal desires are not at all repressed, nor do they have any reason to be. They are nevertheless in an intimate relationship with psychic repression, but in a different manner. Oedipal desires are the bait, the disfigured image by means of which repression catches desire in the trap. 
If desire is repressed, this is not because it is desire for the mother and for the death of the father. On the contrary, desire becomes that only because it is repressed. It takes on that mask only under the reign of the repression that models the mask for it and plasters it on its face. Besides, it is doubtful that incest was a real obstacle to the establishment of society, as the partisans of an exchangist conception claim. We have seen that there were other obstacles. The real danger is elsewhere. If desire is repressed, it is because every position of desire, no matter how small, is capable of calling into question the established order of a society. Not that desire is asocial, on the contrary, but it is explosive. There is no desiring machine capable of being assembled without demolishing entire social sectors. Despite what some revolutionaries think about this, desire is revolutionary in its essence. Desire, not left-wing holidays. And no society can tolerate a position of real desire without its structures and exploitation, servitude, and hierarchy being compromised. It's a fairly self-explanatory paragraph, but the, sh the short version is, again, going back to the idea that uh, our, our core un underlying desires are those ebbs and flows. Uh, the nature of society is that we have to, uh, it's been believed that we have to basically repress desire and shape it. Uh, the need for us to actually have these things. And if we at any point start actually building real desiring machines, we have to start actually taking apart and destroying, eliminating, uh, collapsing entire social structures. Yeah, I think it's funny that that last line about desire always being revolutionary. They're of course going to get to that in chapter three, but uh, I'm sure a lot of hardcore Lacanians must really, really disdain that line. <laughs> Ooh, please explain. I, I don't want to go into that right now, but uh, fair. Let's, let's let's save it for tomorrow because uh, that's actually I it's uh, I I wouldn't even call myself a Lacanian, but I've read quite a bit, and I would. I, I've always uh, been a, a strong believer that uh, the desires and the, ho the the thing that powers populism is always revolutionary power, and that that desire that that desire for change uh, is by nature revolutionary. But we can totally debate that. That'd be fun. We'll save that one for tomorrow, though. Um, to uh, maybe just bring it right back into the test for perhaps a final point. I like too that this is really extrapolating what they mean by a, a paralogism of displacement, right? So like in the Freudian model, right, the, you, you have the libidinal and you have the reality principles and the ego, right? So the id doesn't really work with reality and the ego has got to take the desire of the id into the real world and regulate it, which is at that level, right, psychic. And then you have the social where the superego is going to try and regulate um, that as well. But what I like about what Deleuze and Guattari are saying here is in that model, um, that's not the, the principle of things, which you've got in some ways is more of a symptom of uh, the par paralogism. You've got displacement, which is to say that instead of, um, and I'll be interested to see, um, to develop this further, but it, it's sort of like what we saw with the first synthesis where the, um, the problem with lack, or the, like the the way to understand lack, is not as is not in terms of complete absence, but it, through the presence of. Um, oh, I lost the word. Search of the D. 
a presence of that which is kept from you, um, what is withheld, right? And so in the same way with displacement, it's not that you're, um, right, so it's like not that you can take desire and displace it onto the Oedipal or some other image, right? That would be that would be a mistake. Looks like maybe we've lost Brooks. Well, nope, I'm here. I got disconnected and back. That was weird. Uh, sorry, where did I cut off? I was asking uh, Bigum Guvin's question and then it disappeared on me. Uh, Never heard you say the question. Excellent. That's good. That means uh, Discord's working really well today. Um, how do we know this revolutionary desire is not an anti-production of Oedipalized desire? So if it helps, because they're talking about the Oedipal as working at, as an image or a representation, with, in some way, right, because it's because the Oedipal is a mistake here, because it's something that gets forced on and deducted onto the fact or the reality, um, as opposed to like being in the imminence of it, I would say that it's not revolutionary in that sense because it's not even necessarily taking place. If there were an Oedipal desire taking place um, in a non-representational way, I, I think I could see your point then. I think what they're pretty explicitly talking about is the objective nature of desire. They say it pretty explicitly that the objective nature of desire is this free, free flowing. Um, I forget the term from Freud. It's, it's it's a term that they use from Freud. I keep forgetting the word. It's a, it's a strange word, but uh, the term actually comes from Freud. I think it's uh, someone will correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's uh, counter cathexis or something like that. But um, it's that free energy of libido, right? I think there's a key passage in uh, in ch- in the in the materialist psychiatry section of chapter one, where they talk about uh, you know the it's a really great quote, but the men I knew who were most in tune with life, who lived life as life itself, were the men who needed little, ate little, and slept little, right? I, I think that's the type of desire, desire that they're really referring to, that sort of desire that has the that's, it's, it's much more, uh, it's the open form of desire. Because, uh, you know, the, the paranoia form of desire, the desire as the desire of repression is still desire, but it's not the objective way of desire. Right? I mean, there's still a sort of, um, there's another form that desire can take on the dissociates. What they're ta- I think what they're talking about is because another thing that they're going to get to is that, you know, it's almost sort of getting like, very accelerationist, but, uh, you know, they, they, they have like the potential to push desire, right? You can, if you have desire, you can, you can push it to a certain limit and allow for revolution to a certain degree. Well, and again, we should be talking, uh, I wish Roger were here because he, he knows the original translation really well. Um, uh, you're, you're right. Counter cathexis, anti cathexis, I think is how I always heard it. Uh, but the fact, and I think you're right. They're referring to that. That, my understanding, is almost, uh, it's not so much as a flow as it is a charge, like a, a concerted, built-up pressure that is uh, semi-explosive in the libidinal thing, the cathexis, is that that charge, that moment. Am I wrong on that? I think you're right, because for Freud, it's about, I'm getting this from uh, Gregory Salyer, it's, it's tension and release. So I could see that as being an explosion of pressure. No, Salyer with a Y. (laughs) 
I, I think, uh, well, I mean, the charge, when you bring up charge, a flow is also a charge, right? Because they describe flow as right. a Well, yeah, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily changing that. I'm more just, they're very, very explicit about talking about desire as though it is almost uh, that liquid that's pressurized that's continually moving in some way. Just I, to go back to it being a flow, because it is really important to be thinking of desire uh, as material flows. Uh, through everything, uh, I think to really grasp a lot of this. I think uh, what this this idea of desire being revolution that that's really like the whole structure of chapter three almost. That's what they're getting down yes. into chapter three and four. So I think we can sort of well, and, yeah, and, and actually the next paragraph I'll jump into uh, I think answers a couple of these questions that are in chat and continues that conversation. Um, if a society is identical with its structures, an amusing hypothesis, then yes, desire threatens its very being. It is therefore of vital importance for a society to repress desire and even to find something more efficient than repression, so that repression, hierarchy, exploitation, and servitude are themselves desired. It is quite troublesome to have to say such rudimentary things. Desire does not threaten a society because it is a desire to sleep with the mother, but because it is revolutionary, not talking about desire itself. And that does not at all mean that desire is something other than sexuality, but that sexuality and love do not live in the bedroom of Oedipus. They dream instead of wide-open spaces and cause strange flows to circulate that do not let themselves be stalked within an established order. Desire does not want revolution. It is revolution in its own right, as though involuntarily by wanting what it wants. From the beginning of this study, we have maintained both that social production and desiring production are one and the same, and that they have different regimes, with the result that a social form of production exercise, exercises an essential repression of desiring production, and also that desiring production, a real desire, is potentially capable of demolishing the social form. But what is a real desire, since repression is also desired? How can we tell them apart, huh, Bigum? Huh? We demand the right to a very deliberate analysis. For even in their contrary uses, let us make no mistake about it. The same syntheses are at issue. I actually think it might be worth diving right into the next paragraph. Uh, unless anyone has questions there, uh, because it starts really, really quickly diving into uh, answering the question about how you know the difference. Just wanted to say, I like that there's still, right, this brings alive displacement so well. If your desire threatens a certain structure, it's got to be displaced within the structure so as to um, pacify it. Well, and, and a lot of this speaks to me. Uh, we did a talk, uh, it's worth going back if you weren't there or haven't listened to um, uh, Clastris, Society Against the, uh, uh, against the State. Uh Phenomenal book, uh, really, really good talk we had with our previous host, Craig, um, where we where uh, Clastres went deeply into uh, other societies, uh, non-ethnocentric sort of study of uh, how other society how other societies are formed, where they come from, how their hierarchical structure works. But very much they talked earlier when they were referring they referred to Clastres. Um, they talked as well about how desire functions in those and that Oedipus isn't necessarily the cornerstone of it as class race actually gets into very clearly. Um, it's worth bringing up. Um, I'll continue unless anyone else wants to read. 
it is clear. Sorry. Um, It is clear what psychoanalysis expects to gain from claiming a link. Where Oedipus would be the reason of oppression and even its subject through the intermediary of the superego. From this, it expects a cultural justification for psychic repression, a justification that makes psychic repression move into the foreground and no longer considers the problem of social repression as anything more than secondary from the point of view of the unconscious. That is why critics have been able to observe a conservatory or reactionary turning point in Freud. From the moment that he gave an autonomous value to psychic repression as a condition of culture acting against the incestuous drives. Reich goes so far as to say the crucial turning point of Freudianism, the abandonment of sexuality, comes when Freud accepts the idea of a primary anxiety that supposedly touches off psychic repression in an endogenous fashion. Consider the 1908 article on civilized sexual morality. Oedipus is not yet named here. Psychic repression is considered in terms of social repression, which gives rise to a displacement and acts on the partial drives insofar as they represent in their own fashion a sort of desiring production, before being exercised against the incestuous or other drives threatening legitimate marriage. But it then becomes evident, then, that the more the problem of Oedipus and incest comes to occupy center stage, the more psychic repression and its correlates, suppression and sublimation, will be founded on supposedly transcendent requirements of civilization, at the same time that the psychoanalyst plunges deeper into the familiarist and ideological vision. I think the key word here is, uh, um, where was it, where was it? Uh, Displacement? No, 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 no. It was was endogenous, I think. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, Am I correct? Was that mentioned? Oh, yeah, endogenous fashion. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so um, the thing about Reich is that he, he stopped, cons- I mean, because uh, I think what they're referring to by Freud's uh, uh, conservative turn is that he cons- Freud considered, when, when Oedipus came in, right, Freud considered uh, this Oedipus complex as this objective uh, sort of way desire functions. It's, uh, it's in our nature, right? It's something very much ingrained within us. And uh, I think you like if you look at like R.D. Lang and stuff and all those anti-psychiatric movements, this is a lot of what they reject or what they were um, going against, right? Uh, and this also what Wilhelm Reich talks about the mass psychology of fascism. But uh, this idea of <clears throat> that uh, these these ways of desire, uh, these uh, transcendent uh, forms of desire as uh, psychoanalysis construes it, is the very nature of our unconscious, which Freud put. And I think that's what they're referring to as the reactive turn, right? That it's our very nature to be to join the Oedipus complex. It's our it's the very aspect of uh, this objective being of everyone to uh, go into the Oedipus complex at a certain point. And it, that's the only thing, right? There's nothing other than the Oedipus complex, as the losing Guattari are saying. It's only the Oedipus complex. That's it. It's this one thing that. It's in our. It's ingrained in, in the very in the very soul almost of a person to uh, to go into it. And it's almost they're saying in that last uh, sentence that the more that people began looking into Oedipus and integrating it, the more Oedipus was happy to sort of take on everything more and more and more. Um, 
as they say, incest comes to occupy center stage, the more psychic repression and its correlates, suppression and sublimation, will be founded on supposedly transcendent requirements of civilization. But as uh, it feels as though, uh, I mean, they're talking about the body without organs of, psych- of psychoanalysis here, uh, ultimately, <laughs> and how it falls back on everything as people dig further into it. Yeah, and I mean, Oedipus is uh, is not super influential. Even. Um, those three pathologists that they talk about, those are also not super influential. They're going to say that the real uh, power of uh, this sort of repression or the desire, desiring its own repression, is caused by these things external that come from the outside. And all Oedipus does is it just reinforces it. So the psychoanalyst, really, at the end of the day, he does nothing. But he gets he gets money, right? And yep. what we're going to talk about later in the next paragraph, what I'm sort of I'll just try and make an introduction is that you know they're going to say that psycho hence because of let like, psychoanalysis allows all this to happen, right? That psychoanalysis does nothing but just allows these processes of integration, right, uh, to happen. Psychoanalysis is very much a capitalist practice when with the divisions between. Uh, social production and uh, desiring reproduction in the family unit and, you know, in the work unit. Well, would you like to also uh, just go ahead and read the next paragraph then? Uh, Sure. We do not need to relate again the reactionary compromise of Freudianism and even its theoretical surrender. This work has already been accomplished several times in a profound way, rigorously, and with nuances. We see no special problem in the possibility of a coexistence of revolutionary, reformist, and reactionary, reactionary elements at the heart of the same theoretical and practical doctrine. We refuse to play take it or leave it. Under the pretext that the theory justifies practice being born from it, or that one cannot challenge the process of cure, except by starting from the elements drawn from this very cure. As if every great doctrine were not a combined formation, constructed from bits and various inter- intermingled clothes and flux, partial elements and der- derivat- derivatives that constitute its very life or its becoming, as if we could reproach someone for having an ambiguous relationship with psychoanalysis without first mentioning that psychoanalysis owes its, relation- owes its existence to a relationship theoretically and practically ambiguous with what it discovers and the force that it wields, right? I, I think this idea of take it or leave it, right? You have a really dogmatic... Uh, if you have a really dogmatic, um, like someone who's really dogmatic to the Freudian tradition and, and you tell, okay, so what I'm going to take is I'm going to take the concept of libido, but I'm not going to take the concept of Oedipus, right? They would just go nuts because <laughs> they, they, they'd say, no, take it or leave it, right? You have to follow everything is all this sort of meshwork that has to be followed in this direct system. But what Deleuze and Guattari are saying, they're going to take uh, concepts of psychoanalysis and they're going to combine it, right? They, they don't, they take the concept of libido. They like the concept of counterpathexis. They take that. And, uh, and on the same way that Melanie Klein took partial objects and Lacan changed the partial objects to the object petita, you know, I, I think, in fact, they say somewhere that the object petit, Lacan was close to fi- discovering desire machines with the object petit, though. Well, and, and I think it's um, the, the wording that they use here also talks about the thing uh, being a cause in itself. As you dive in, you necessarily have to take everything with it. Uh, and it reminds me, and Zizek probably hates that I would use, uh, his example of uh, Coca-Cola that as, as you drink it, it makes you thirsty, but it's also supposed to quench thirst. This thing that is the problem itself and also the cure. 
uh, feels like they're talking about that as well because we talk about it that as you take the process of cure, except by starting from elements drawn from this very cure, you're you you are chasing yourself in a bit of a circle here. Mm-hmm. No, perhaps. Um. Well, we'll leave me hanging there. Excellent, Varun. Thank you. <laughs> um. All right. Uh, so, uh, any questions on that paragraph before uh, we move? Uh, the Coke exam. It's not. I don't even know. Zizek talks about it all the time. It's in um, Pervert's Guide to uh, Ideology. Wonderful film. Uh, that's probably my favorite one. But it's a, it's it's the idea that you you have to take the cure with the the thing that causes it, and that our lives are now spent trying to find the thing without the thing. Uh, the uh, coffee without caffeine, uh, chocolate that is a laxative, uh, all of these things is so we can avoid the problem inside of itself. Shijik nails examples. That's right, Martini. Um, I, I just like to mention that the uh, this is a problem with theory in general and the reification of theories in general. Not you know, I mean, psychoanalysis here is just an example of that. Uh, the reification of a theory into a dogmatism. Yeah, I I agree with what Ken's saying. Um, there is there is a risk of um, a theory or a solution getting reified. And what I like is Deleuze and Guattari write, we see no special problem in the possibility of a coexistence of revolutionary, reformist, and reactionary elements at the heart of the same theoretical and practical doctrine. I, I like that what they're... So like there's, a, there's a temptation, um, especially in more like... Um, sort of Marxist uh, circles to always want to be revolutionary and get away from the reactionary, right? But what their point is here, I think, too, is that it's not that you can just get rid of rid of being reactionary, right? Like there is both reactionary and revolutionary uh, unconscious investment. And what I like about um, what they're talking about in that specific example is you don't need a purist theory that's either revolutionary or reactionary, right? It's not that you have to um, make a choice between one or the other. I think also it's a it's a critique that says that you know all theories are you know put together in a bricolore kind of style, drawing upon the culture and the theories that went before in order to to create some kind of theoretical position and. Uh, and that hodgepodge of elements that you put together that you try to make coherent and make into a, a, a coherent way of looking at the world uh, then is separated from life. And then in that separation from life, then it can become reified so that it just becomes a uh, isolated artifact that doesn't really have any relationship to what's actually going on. Can I ask a question? Sure, of course. Uh, this, is a, this is a really minor point here, and I, I get the spirit of what they're saying and, and why it's written in this way. But it, just that thing of saying, uh, it, was, it almost kind of confused me when they were saying, oh, we don't, you know, we don't mind that mixing these things up and that no, you know, no, all doctrines are kind of uh, hodgepodges, and that all completely makes sense to me. What I didn't understand was them saying, 
in regards to psychoanalysis because they they're so like consistently savage and critical of all these theorists who kind of take can pick different concepts which are still essentially just reinforcing these Oedipal ideas so I mean, maybe they're saying it's slightly different but like I thought that an easy counterpoint would be well this is the reason why you need to take it or leave it because just like you say if you if you just take one aspect of this theory it's going to have all these traces of those like Oedipal arrangements in it which is why you need like our superstructure to understand it now, commonsensically I don't agree with that but I'm just trying to understand how would they explain that objection? I, I think that one of the things to kind of appreciate here is that what, what they're saying more broadly is that, you know, if, if theories are ridiculous, we should ridicule them. Not just, not, because that's what they're doing here. They're ridiculing uh, psychoanalysis because, you know, as it's been built up, it's become something that's, ridiculous and disconnected from life, and that we should do that with other dogmatisms as well, not just psychoanalysis, but, but anything that becomes a dogmatism, because it's those dogmatisms that when, because they're very extreme, restricted economies, that, that, that they, they lead to the fascism. When they're acted upon, that's when, that's when you get the fascism. Alyosha, um, to, to sort of uh, to answer your question in a different sense too, schizoanalysis is intended to de-edipalize psychoanalysis, right? So psychoanalysis itself is not necessarily, um, it doesn't need to be nuked per se, right? To put it at its own ground zero. It needs exactly what it thinks other people need, right? It needs to be de-edipalized. See, I, th I think the answer to his question is the fact that because all theorists are creating, are bricolures creating these hodgepodges uh, that they make into theories, uh, Deleuze and Guattari can't do anything different because they're in a particular historical situation with certain things available to them to uh, critique other positions and certain things not available. And so since everyone's in that position, um, you know, there, there is no transcendent position from which you can have a perfect theory. I mean, in principle, I, I do love that idea. And I, I think so many of our uh, artless and uh, guileless leftist friends could use a dose of that. But yeah, thank you, guys. Well, I, I'd like to mention a book that I always liked by Alan Blum called Theorizing. And in that book, he puts forward the proposition that a theory should do what it says. And I think that this anti-Oedipus text is an excellent example of something that, uh, you know, a theory that does what it says. Uh, in the fact that in, in the actual style of the book, they're actually trying to um, put into effect their theoretical position. So you can actually see it embodied rather than it just being uh, something brought in deus ex machina to uh, control a situation. And uh, real quick, I'm just going to take a moment. Uh, if everyone can see the note in Varun's thing that I am starring, where he says he fucked up Karlbot, because he totally did. If you could star, just click on that star. Give me a few stars, see if it pops up. There we go. Now, Varun, best of you fucked up Karlbot. I fixed it, but now everyone gets to know. There you go. Thank you, everyone, for doing that. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right, Carlbot's working again. Uh, uh, server highlights should be working again. Sorry about that uh, uh, issue. Um, and it's we love you, Varun. Don't worry. Uh, would someone uh, like to read the next uh, paragraph? I'll volunteer. Go for it. While the critical study of Freudian ideology has been done and done well, on the other hand, the history of the movement has never even been sketched out. The structure of the psychoanalytic group, its politics, its tendencies and its focal points, its self-applications, its suicides and its follies, the enormous group superego, everything that took place on the body of the master, what has come to be called the monumental work of Ernest Jones does not penetrate censorship. It codifies it. And the way the three elements coexisted, the exploratory, pioneering, revolutionary element, whereby desiring production was discovered, the classical cultural movement, which reduces everything to a scene from Oedipal theatric representation, the return to myth, and finally, the third element, the most disturbing, a sort of racket, thirsting after respectability, which will never have done with getting itself reorganized and institutionalized. A formidable enterprise of absorption of surplus value. With its codification of the interminable cure, its cynical justification of the role of money and all the pledges it makes to the established order, all these elements were present in Freud, a fantastic Christopher Columbus, a brilliant bourgeois reader of Goethe, Shakespeare, and Sophocles, a masked Al Capone. <laughs> really, uh, I like the way they wrote that a lot, but because you know, if uh, what they're gonna, what they're saying is that you know, by all these divisions, psychoanalysis created so all. All Freud is doing is he's affirming the movement of uh, the way capitalism dis- divides uh, one part, two modes of uh, two regimes, right? It makes the, the regimes of desiring production and it makes the regimes of social production. And together with these sort of the way and then the way, you know, because I, I think they have a very, uh, they, they, they see Freud as almost this uh very useless in, in, um, this uh, insipid figure, right? He's very, he's, he's almost, because, you know, if, if, uh, if, the, if, if capitalism already starts the edipalizing, or at least the prohibition of incest in this case starts the edipalizing, what's, uh, what, uh, what's uh, um, Freud doing? He's just taking money at the end of the day, right? And I also like that line of, that they had in the previous chapter when they talk about the theater, right? Freud, Freud just conceived it as a classical theater, not even close to an avant-garde one of his day. So some great writing here. You know, I, I really like, um, and I think it's worth spending a minute on this, where they talk about the three elements of um, what I believe is the psychoanalytic group structure. So, right, the exploratory, pioneering, revolutionary element, where desiring production is discovered. The second element being this classical cultural element, which is a way of making everything edipalized. And then a third element, which is the um, the absorption of surplus value. And like Varun is saying, the, the codification of a 
interminable cure, right? A cure you never get to. And so what I like about that is it gives you three um, three elements of psychoanalysis and its structure to think about, one of which actually is a revolutionary element. So at one time, right, and maybe even still today, psychoanalysis does have a revolutionary element. No, I won't disagree. For me, it's uh, their senses of humor. Um, am I muted? No. Why is it showing me muted? It shows you as muted on my screen, too. In the world. Discord's having a time. Uh, it's fine. But what I, what I love about their senses of humor is uh, either it comes in uh, what they would commonly refer to as blue humor, uh, where they make jokes about winky jokes about anal sex or use the word fuck in some way. Otherwise, they make jokes like this that we all giggle at, but all I can see is all of us with monocles drinking wine as the servants walk around us. Like, some of it's so bougie humor. It just feels so upper-class bougie humor. But it makes me chuckle. They're fascinating. Um, all right. Uh, shall we move uh, on to the next paragraph? Yeah, sure. Read the next section. Go for it. Uh, the strength of Reich consists in having shown how psychic repression depended on social repression, which in no way implies a confusion of the two concepts, since social repression needs psychic repression precisely in order to form docile subjects and to ensure the reproduction of social formation, including in its representative stru- repressive structures. But uh, the social repression should not be understood by using as a starting point a familial representation, coextensive with civilization. Far from it. It is civilization that must be understood in terms of a social repression, inherent to a given form of social production. Social repression bears on desire and not solely on needs or interest, only by means of sexual repression. The family is indeed the delegated agent of the psychic repression, insofar as it ensures a mass psychological reproduction of the economic system of the society. Of course, it should not be concluded that from this 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 that desire is edible. On the contrary, it is the social repression of desire or sexual repression that is the stasis of libidinal energy that actualizes Oedipus and engages desire in this requisite impasse organized by the repressive society. I, I think um, if we go to the very beginning of this this paragraph, when they I, I think that what they're implying is there's a reciprocal there's a there's a reciprocal nature between uh, social repression and psychic repression, right? You could you could say that social repression. Uh, leads to psychic repression, but then more psychic repression also leads back into some more social repression. And it's kind of like this almost feedback loop that you have going on here. Um, and, and then I think what they're also implying here with the family, right? This is, again, that strict distinction in capitalism, right? You have the family where reproduction takes place and you have the, you know, your, your, your work, your factory where pr- real production takes place. And it's a, it's part of that sort of these distinctions that ensure these mass systems to be in place. Yeah. I like this line too, but social repression should not be understood by using as a starting point, a familial repression coextensive with society, with civilization. Far from it. It is civilization that must be understood in terms of the social repression inherent to a given form of social production. I like that with social production in this form of society, right? With social production, you get um, social repression. Would anyone like to take on the next next section? 
I would. I've lost my place because I've been messing with bots and trying to fix a couple things on the server. Where where do we leave off? Is it Reich? Reich? Yes. Reich was. Well, I'll give that a shot then. Uh, let's see. Uh, Reich was the first to raise the problem of the relationship between desire and the social field, and went further than Marcuse, who treats the problem lightly. He is the true founder of a materialist psychiatry. Situating the problem in terms of desire, he is the first to reject the explanations of a summary Marxism too quick to say the masses were fooled, mystified. But since he has not sufficiently formulated the concept of desiring production, he did not succeed in determining the insertion of desire into the economic infrastructure itself, the insertion of the drives into social production. Consequently, revolutionary investment seemed to him such that the desire moving within it simply coincided with an economic rationality. As to the reactionary mass investments, they seemed to him to derive from ideology, so that psychoanalysis merely had a role of explaining the subjective, the negative, the inhibited, without participating directly as psychoanalysis in the positivity of the revolutionary movement or in the desiring creativity. To a certain extent, didn't this amount to a reintroduction of the error or the illusion? The fact remains that Reich, in the name of desire, caused a song of life to pass into psychoanalysis. He denounced, in the final resignation of Freudianism, a fear of life, a resurgence of the ascetic ideal, a cultural broth of bad consciousness. Better to depart in search of the orgone, he said to himself, in search of the vital and cosmic element of desire, than to continue being a psychoanalyst under these conditions. No one forgave him this, whereas Freud got full pardon. Reich was the first to attempt to make the analytic machine and the revolutionary machine function together. In the end, he only had his own desiring machines, his paranoiac, miraculous, and celibate boxes, with metallic inner walls lined with cotton and wool. I am wholly uncertain of what that means. Uh, Reich, uh, Reich created machines in order to try to trap orgone energy. Uh, Reich was into some really bizarre stuff. Like I, I think there's also some a whole load of occultism with the whole orgone accumulator thing. Um, and uh, you know, even like writers, like novelists, like William S. Burroughs and stuff, they used to experiment with all these things. I mean, there are parts of Reich where he tried to shoot down aliens from the sky. But um, the thing is, even in chapter one, they say that the, uh, the mistake Reich made was that he didn't have desiring machines. They say that if he had this concept or synthesis of desiring machines that um, that the losing watery are saying is he would have managed to put his uh, his critique he would have managed to push his critique to its auto critique right that I mean this book is an auto critique to some degree right and um, it's only because he lacked those sort of uh, desiring machines he didn't go far enough. And uh, like bad consciousness, so there are a lot of subtle elements. That's a term from that's a Nietzschean term, right? He, if if, if, if there's a, I don't want to go super into this because it might just get too complicated. But there's a passage in Nietzschean philosophy where it's uh, it's I think it's towards the end. It's chapter four of Nietzschean philosophy where Deleuze talks about he um, talks about uh, resentment and how bad consciousness works almost in a viral manner, right? The way uh, Nietzschean resentment correlates with bad consciousness. And I think that might be helpful to check out sometime later. 
for sure. Uh, I'm going to continue into the next uh, uh, paragraph uh, so we can continue to move on. We've got a bit of a clip we need to match. We've got 25 minutes left and six, seven paragraphs. So, um, Psychic repression distinguishes itself from social repression by the unconscious nature of the operation and by its result. Even the inhibition of revolt has become unconscious. A distinction that expresses clearly the difference in nature between two repressions. But a real independence cannot be concluded from this. Psychic repression is such that social repression becomes desired. It induces a consequent desire, a faked image of its object, on which it bestows the appearance of independence. Strictly speaking, psychic repression is a means in the service of social repression. What it bears on is also the object of social repression, desiring production. But it in fact implies an original double operation. The repressive social formation delegates its power to an agent of psychic repression, and correlatively, the repressed desire is as though masked by the fake displaced image to which the repression gives rise. Psychic repression is delegated by the social formation, while the desiring formation is disfigured and displaced by psychic repression. Um, I, I think so. What, what they have is a sort of organization they talk about, right? So you have a you have a productive nature at the very beginning. You have a, this is almost primordial of the unconscious, right? The unconscious that produces the very real. Um, at the very beginning, you have. Um, you, you you have desiring machines, right? These desiring machines, which whose nature is productive, but as soon as you get a, a social production, I mean, you, as soon as you start getting social formations, right? You get social production, and when desiring machines are lead to social production, right? When social production is introduced, uh, that leads to a sort of repression. And one desiring when so when the desire when that what's what a poor form of social formation does, it represses back to the desiring machines, and when it represses back to the desiring machines, the, you know the objective formation of desire the flows right then and and so uh, one so the, the the repression of desiring machines I think happens quite clearly with the prohibition of incest, and then that leads to psychic repression, and I think that that has to deal more with specifically their critique of psychoanalysis. I think that's where psychic repression takes place. I, I I'm wondering whether this uh, faked image of its object and fake displaced image, whether that is the object de petit a from Lacan and Zizek, Zizek, I mean. Actually, I'm going to start calling him Zizek because I think that would really piss him off. <laughs> so I, actually, I, I don't know if it's the object petit a. I'm, the, the first image that, that struck me is when, when they specifically use the term, um, where is it? Um, uh, bestows on on which it bestows the appearance of independence, the induced a consequent desire. So psychic repression is such that social repression becomes desired. Uh, it induces a consequent desire, the faked image of the object, on which it appears, uh, it, it places the appearance of freedom. That hits me, and the way it hits me is... Uh, I, I think of all the people I know who have the don't tread on me flags, the appearance of independence while desiring. Uh, it's the, 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 what's the running joke right now? Uh, don't tread on me unless you're a corporation or, or the Donald Trump or the government actually tread on me. 
And it just feels like that just that just hits such an interesting note for me. Yeah, but I think too, if I'm reading this correctly, it's and this will probably elaborate too. Um, it's an independence, right? So it's it's that the the sort of created image is thought to be in, and this is what you're talking about, right, Brooks? It's that the created image is thought to be independent from the social repression. Yes, I, I think that's, and that's what they're getting at, that it's not, we have this uh, sort of, the the previous sort of standing of this is that everything comes back to this these simple archetypes or this Oedipal archetype or whatever it may be. And they're saying, no, it's, that in in this moment the the psychic repression uh, gives itself uh, uh, an image. It, it gives social repression an image, a, a thing that you can use that is actually not the repression itself. It's a faked image that has the look of freedom within it. Uh, I mean, a lot of this is them trying. A lot of anti-Oedipus is them trying to give explanation towards why people desire fascism, uh, and it feels as though that is a really important line in that direction. Uh, it, 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 it's just hitting me in such an interesting... And then the rest of it. What it bears on is also the object of social repression, desiring production, implies an original double operation. On the one hand, the repressive social formation delegates its power to the agent of psychic repression, and at the same time, uh, the desire is repressed... Uh, through the faked image to which the repression gives rise. They they come hand in hand. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too, right? Because it almost sounds like there's a temptation to think of Oedipus as independent from the social structure. And that's, that if, I think that's what they're saying. That's a very clever insight because I think I can see their point in the way that you've almost got to figure out a way to map Oedipus onto the social structure because it would seem to be independent of it. But at the same time, it, it also displaces you from the social structure. And, and on that, I'm actually going to jump through to the next... Uh, I'm going to jump through to the next paragraph because we do have a good amount to get through here. Uh, and I want to make sure we get through this because I want our review session to be uh, significant tomorrow and not have to break this up into another 20 minutes. Uh, the family is the delegated agent of psychic repression, or rather, the agent delegated to psychic repression. The incestuous drives are the disfigured image of the repressed. The Oedipus complex, the process of Oedipalization, is therefore the result of this double operation. Uh, emphasis theirs. It is in one... And the same movement, that the repressive social production is replaced by the repressing family, and that the latter offers a displaced image of desiring production that represents the repressed as incestuous familial drives. In this way, the family drives relationship is substituted for the relationship between the two orders of production, in a diversion where the whole of psychoanalysis goes astray. And the interest of such an operation from the point of view of social production becomes evident. For the latter could not otherwise ward off desire's potential for revolt and revolution. By placing the distorting mirror of incest before the desire. Well, that's what you wanted, isn't it? Desire is shamed, stupefied. It is placed in a situation without exit. It is easily persuaded to deny itself in the name of the more important interests of civilization. What if everyone did the same? What if everyone married his mother or kept his sister for himself? There would no longer be any differentiation, any exchanges possible. 
We must act quickly and soon. Incest. A slandered, shallow stream. I try to make it an entertaining read, Martini. Uh, yeah, I just tried to... <laughs> Jordan Peters' impression. <laughs> I, 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 I just copied and pasted one of the lines I think we should read again. So I'll just do it again. It is in one and the same movement that the repressive social reproduction is replaced by the replacing family and that the latter offers a displaced image of desiring production that represents the repressed as incestuous family drives. Right? I think we're coming back to that idea of the essential schism, right? That there's a, there's a schism between social, there's a schism between social production and reproduction, right? And it's that schism that's very prevalent in, in uh, the sort of society that's sort of allowing almost these, um, these repressing representations to come into being. And uh, they say pretty clearly about that whole idea of. Um, well, I, I like the, the, the way that they place it. And it's, I'm not saying we're all thinking of these things in order, but in the sort of operation classically and Oedipally, how we think about desire is desire exists and then we have to work to contain it. And specifically, they say by placing the distorting mirror of incest before desire. Desire is shamed, stupefied, and placed in a situation without exit. It is easily persuaded to deny itself in the name of more important interests of civilization. By by placing it there, we've actually already given it shape. We've already placed it what it looks like. Um, and I, 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 I find that as a, a very interesting sort of uh, diagrammatic way to sort of talk through that. Um, but it's worth uh, uh, continuing to move on. I hate to speed through a lot of these wonderful points but we have uh, uh 15 minutes uh please uh as as we do this don't hesitate to jump in of course uh but i'm definitely going to continue to read let me know if anyone else would like to read at any point uh, although we can sorry who is that so if you want to finish this page i'll volunteer to take the next one that sounds good to me Although we can see social production's interest in such an operation, it is less clear what makes this operation possible from the point of view of desiring production itself. We do have, however, the elements of a response. Social production would need, at its disposal, on the recording surface of the socius, an agent that is also capable of acting on, of inscribing the recording surface of desire. Such an agent exists, the family. It belongs essentially to the recording of social production as a system of reproduction of the producers. And doubtless, at the other pole, the recording of desiring production on the body without organs is brought about through a genealogical network that is not familial. Parents only intervene here as partial objects, flows, signs, and agents of a process that outflanks them on all sides. At most, the child innocently relates to his parents some part of the astonishing productive experience he is undergoing with his desire. But this experience is not related to them as such. Yet this is precisely where the operation arises. Under the precocious action of social repression, the family slips into and interferes with the network of desiring genealogy. It assumes the task of alienating the entire genealogy. It confiscates the Newman. But see here, God is daddy. The desiring experience is treated as if it were intrinsically related to the parents, and as if the family were its supreme law. Partial objects are subjected to the notorious law of totality unity acting as lacking. 
the disjunctions are subjected to the alternative of the undifferentiated or exclusion. Like that a lot. Uh, any comments on that before I move on to the next uh, paragraph? It's, it's, it's a ton to unpack, and I think our review session will go over most of it. But I think that just to go over real quick, um, the important signs in here and things in here are doubtless at the other poll, the recording of desiring production on the body without organs is brought about through a genealogical network that is not familial. Uh, that again, they're, they've talked throughout this about how Oedipus is real. Oedipus exists. They're not saying Oedipus is not a thing that from families aren't a thing. That'd be ridiculous. But uh, here, parents intervene as partial objects, flows and signs and agents of a process that outflanks them on all sides. At most, the child innocently relates to his parents some part of the astonishing productive experience he is undergoing with his desire. Back to, they're trying to understand inclusivity, right? The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the schizophrenic inclusive disjunction versus the paranoiac exclusive disjunction, right? Where the objective uh, nature of desire, as they want to uh, point out or the almost revolutionary form of des- desire exists in this way where you know the 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 memory i think one easy way to think about the body without organs is, is a memory device right the memory that's the recording recording of disjunctions of memory on the des- on the or the signifying chains of the body without organs is a lot is inclusive right you and uh, what the what what you have is that you have a complex network I think rather than signifying chains, I think one's easier to think of it as a complex network because I think signifying chains brings it back to Lacan. They say Lacan's discovery was what allowed was 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 very close to what they meant by the body without organs. But you know, as Lacan put it so uh, monolithically with language, the body without organs for them is all these like partial objects. That the science of the body without organs is not just language, as Lacan will put it, but it's these just these. It could be like these any sort of forms of partial objects and just pure memory. So I think it's better to think of it as a network. But I think thinking of it as a network is absolutely uh, the way to go. And I, I know uh, we have Kenton here, who's a bit of a fan of network theory, knows a little bit about it, but um, it's a hundred percent thinking about every single piece of the entire puzzle of what makes a desiring machine function, what makes a person do what they do. Uh, really, really important. I really, it's one of the things I love about stuff that's coming out of uh, Deleuze, uh, Delanda, and a lot of other things is thinking about things as though it's a massive network. I mean, what I find interesting about Delanda, I mean, Kent, we're having a conversation about this. I don't know it's off task, but it's that he found a way almost with complexity theory and nonlinear dynamics to to map out the virtual, right? He, you know, when people think Deleuze is virtual, they're like, oh, how can it be real, right? I, I think Delanda, uh, or at least that's what Kent told me about when I explained to him my example, but Delanda has a... Has, has you know Delanda formalizes it in a way that it's very much real. Because yeah, there's a lot of these concepts, I, I think it's a lot better explicited in, in a thousand plateaus, right? There's a tendency to think of Deleuze and Guattari as these sort of mysterious thinkers or mystics, right? Hermetics almost. But uh, you know, all, the, all, 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 everything that they're saying, I think it, it, it does conform to like the contemporary laws of uh, physics at that time, and you know, like uh, morphogenesis of Rene Thom and all the cybernetic work that was going on. And Kent, uh, tomorrow, let's make sure we go over 
because uh, I know you you probably have a million things to say. I, I want to make sure we get through. We have 10 more minutes. Oh, no. Sure. We'll, we'll get there. But tomorrow, okay. definitely, because I've got some questions I'll be joining tomorrow for sure, because there's a lot to go through. Um, to continue to the next paragraph, though, the family is therefore introduced into the production of desire and will perform a displacement, an unparalleled repression of desire commencing with the earliest age of a child. Social production delegates the family to psychic repression. And if the family is able to and able in this manner to slip into the recording of desire, it is because the body without organs on which this recording is accomplished already exercises on its own account, as we have seen, a primal repression of desiring production. It falls to the family to profit from this and to superimpose the repression that is properly termed secondary, this being a function dedicated to the family or one to which the family is delegated. Psychoanalysis has clearly demonstrated the difference between these two repressions, but has not shown the scope of this difference or the distinction between their respective regimes. That is why psychic repression, in the strict sense, does not content itself with repressing real desiring production, but offers a displaced, apparent image of the repressed by substituting a familial recording for the recording of desire. Desiring production taken as a whole does not assume the well-known Oedipal figure, except in the familial translation of its recording. Translation betrayal. I like that. I like that term. Um, and again, uh, just to say it again in Varun, please correct me. This is following up on the point that family is a network that is basically taking in social repression and their job is to even focus it even more greatly. It's one of the reasons that family is a focal point of psychoanalysis is that they are by nature a very focal, focused version of the larger social repression that is happening. Yeah, and it's the key word is, is how this uh, the schism happens. Yes. About, yeah. Uh, Jack, would you like to continue? Sure. At times we say that Oedipus is nothing, almost nothing, within the order of desiring production, even in the child. At other times we say that it is everywhere, in the enterprise of domesticating the unconscious, or representing desire and the unconscious. To be sure, we have never dreamed of saying that psychoanalysis invented Oedipus. Everything points in the opposite direction. The subjects of psychoanalysis arrive already Oedipalized. They demand it. They want more. Newsflash. Stravinsky declares before dying, quote, My misfortune, I am sure of it, came from my father's being so distant with me and from the small amount of affection shown me by my mother. So I decided that one day I would show them, end quote. If even artists give in to this, it would be a mistake to stand on ceremony and hold to the ordinary scruples of a diligent psychoanalyst. If a musician tells us that music does not attest to active and conquering forces, but to reactive forces, to reactions to daddy-mommy, we have only to play again on a paradox dear to Nietzsche while barely modifying it. Freud as a musician... Uh, this uh, this uh, I think this uh, paragraph's brilliant. I think it it it, it uh, conceptualizes uh, everything that we've been discussing about in this chapter really perfectly, um, especially uh, that part about psychoanalysis. That the subjects already arrived at applies right. It's already in that mode of social production. You've already you know capitalism or 
I don't use the word capitalism because it's still other forms of social production that could still occur, right? Uh, but it's a, it's it's within that form of social production that uh, you know your subjectivity is also is already construed in a certain manner. It's just that you go to the analyst and he just reifies it, right? He just goes and oh, he just affirms it already. It's it's already with the prohibition of incest for Deleuze and Guattari that we have this sort of edipalized nature. And you go to the psychoanalysis, and he'll just go and you know. I think Mark Seam in his in his uh, preface to this book, he explained it pretty well, right? He'd just go there and he'd just be like, "Oh, he has endless time in the world. Lay down on the couch, and uh, be I'll be the listening here for you, <laughs> right?" It's it's just that oh, we'll just go and uh, take it. We'll just we'll just reify it. We're not going to do something super special, you know. There's nothing really there's nothing really innovative about psychoanalysis or innovative. Sorry. I'll say, too, to add to that real briefly, um, I think it's interesting, too, to consider that the way the Stravinsky quote is working and that um, they arrive edipalized only in the sense that their desire has been displaced, right? So, like, uh, it seems that the social social repression and psychic repression existed before psychoanalysis, and therefore psychoanalysis is just... Um, if it did have a revolutionary time, it was probably when it was looking for a way to cure Oedipus. But at the same time, right, um, it's interesting that Stravinsky, I think, works as this example so as to say that there's Stravinsky doing his desiring production, and then there's the, him looking back on it and saying that, well, yeah, I wrote all those things, but I wrote them um, because I was suffering from this, um, this sort of Oedipal thing. And actually, I'll go ahead and finish out the chapter because it does go directly into that, and it ends with uh, some Artoad, because why not? And if you haven't, uh, we've done a number of talks on Artoad uh, that are on our uh, SoundCloud and other places. Feel free to give those a read and a listen. No, psychoanalysts invent nothing, though they have invented much in another way and have legislated a lot, reinforced a lot, injected a lot. All that psychoanalysts do is to reinforce the movement. They add a last burst of energy to the displacement of the entire unconscious. What they do is merely to make the unconscious speak according to the transcendent uses of synthesis imposed on it by other forces. Global persons, the complete object, the great phallus, the terrible and differentiated of the imaginary, symbolic differentiation, segregation. What psychoanalysts invent is only the transference, a transference Oedipus, a consulting room Oedipus of Oedipus especially noxious and virulent, and where the subject finally has what he wants and sucks away at his Oedipus on the full body of the analyst. And that's already too much. But Oedipus takes shape in the family, not in the analyst's office, which merely acts as the last territoriality, and Oedipus is not made by the family. The Oedipal uses of synthesis, Oedipalization, triangulation, castration, all refer to forces a bit more powerful, a bit more subterranean than psychoanalysis, than the family, than ideology, even joined together. There we have all the forces of social production, reproduction, and repression. This can be explained by the simple truth that very powerful forces are required to defeat the forces of desire, lead them to resignation, and substitute everywhere reactions of the daddy-mommy type for what is essentially active, aggressive, artistic, productive, and triumphant in the unconscious itself. It is in this sense, as we have seen, that Oedipus is an application and the family a delegated agent. 
Even by application, it is hard, it is difficult for a child to live and experience himself as an angle. And I'm going to read the English version of this. The child, he is not there. He is but an angle, an angle to come, and there is no angle. And yet, it is precisely this world of father-mother which must go away. It is this world split in two, doubled, in a state of constant disunion, also willing a constant unification, around which turns the entire system of this world, maliciously sustained by the most somber organization. Hey, look at that. We finished this auction. Um, I, I really do like, I, I love our toad. Um, but I do like the con conception of the family as the agent of the Oedipus application. Uh, I, I do I, pronounce I, it our toad. Is, is that wrong? Is it, is it, is it, uh, uh Antonin Arto. Our toad? The D is silent. The D is silent. Excellent. Of course it is, because why not? Like your big toe. Excellent. All right. Our toe. Excellent. Can do that. Um, I, I, you know, uh, th this, uh, it's, it's funny. I just had a sort of epiphany here. I mean, because in, in, in what is philosophy, the Lewis and Guattari say that philosophy is the creation of concepts. And if, uh, if, uh, if, if psychoanalysis is creating all these transcendent concepts, right? These false concepts, because they're transcendent, right? They're paralogistic in the Kantian sense. I mean, are they really doing philosophy according to Lewis and Guattari? Probably not, right? <laughs> uh, I think, too, what you want to think about, too, is if the unconscious is where the creation is happening, the way we interact and relate with our unconscious is indeed very important for the things we create. Right. And so philosophy is the creation of concepts. Philosophy's unconscious is very, very critical, just as psychoanalysis would be. But to, um, uh, to make a, a slightly different point, I want to just draw brief attention that if you notice what Artaud is talking about is very different than what Stravinsky is talking about. So you have this way of offering it a counterexample to the um, the example of Stravinsky that he um, that Deleuze and Guattari just referenced. And uh, I think we'll actually yeah, let's go ahead and favorite that. Um, when you're editing, keeping your out for the right. Did I? Oh God damn it. Okay. One more thing, um, Alyosha asked me to make sure that we announce that uh, Simon then will be having a discussion on Sunday at 11 a.m. PDT, uh, and the text is in the Simon Dan channel. And we want to make sure we got it on the recording because we love you all so much and we enjoy your participation. That we also want to remind you that tomorrow uh, we will at the same time be going over this chapter with any questions anyone has in a much more free form uh, review. And it tends to be a really enlightening and a lot of lines of flight are found there, at least for me. Uh, yeah, so join for sure. Everyone, any last notes? I think for the review session, it really helps if you leave some questions beforehand. I think some people did that last time. That was really helpful because it allowed us to structure the discussion a bit. So if you have that up, uh, you can see there is a follow-up questions. Um, that is what that is for. If you go up there uh, at any point today, right now, whenever, 
uh, or if you're here because you've listened to previous talks, feel free to put follow-up questions there. The, the goal we have is every night we try to go through those and answer them or bring them up on the next podcast. So that would be great. Um, uh, but like Martini, I have to uh, slowly get ready for work here. And 